as I said to a client of mine recently, and he said, sorry, did you say what I just think you said? What, what? I said, what, what do you think I said? And he said, you said that you don't really rate 95% of your thinking. And I said, you know, that's correct, yeah. 95% of my thinking is not worth anything. That's leading performance coach Shane Craddock, who has over 20 years of experience working with high-performing leaders internationally across 50 countries. In today's episode of Your Truth Shared, we talk about a time when Shane suffered from depression, his intention to take his own life 28 years ago, and what it took to claw his way back after a chance conversation with his dad. Shane knows firsthand that their thoughts can be helpful or they can be dangerous. I'm Fanola Howard, intuitive marketer, your host and founder of How Great Marketing Works. I believe that every business has a story to tell because that's how the market decides whether to buy or not. And your story has to resonate with who you are and with the people you want to serve. And this podcast is about helping you reach the market in a way that feels right to you. So if you're an entrepreneur with a dream you want to make real, then this is the podcast for you because great marketing is your truth shared. And today I want to introduce you to leading performance coach Shane Craddock. We first met each other on RTE. We were being interviewed about the importance of having mentors and coaches and how that helps businesses. And we ended up connecting and chatting and bouncing ideas off each other and all the rest of it. And he has this amazing story. And it's a story that we're going to go into in a second. But what I'm called to say to you is if you go to Shane's website, you'll see this. It's like a man uh, shouting loudly or screaming. And it's a strong image. Yet you'll discover now in the next few minutes that this is that strength is inside Shane. But he comes across very quiet and reflective and it's indicative of his work. Welcome, Shane. (laughs) Thank you, Fanola. Actually, it's funny. That photograph, it took me a while. That photograph happened by accident, actually. Yeah. But it took me a while to get comfortable with actually putting it out there because I wasn't quite sure whether it would convey um, maybe what I thought should be conveyed. But anytime I showed it to somebody, this is before I put it out on, on social media or on the website, there was always this kind of very strong reaction to it. And it was kind of very different this is what I was told was different to what was out there in terms of you're trying to get the professional and glossy image. And um, it kind of happened. John Murray, an Irish guy, was taking the shot and he just said in a break, hey, let's do a bit of messing, uh, do a screen face. So that happened in one shot. And then he said, oh, I love that. I think that's going to be the best shot. And I thought, mm-hmm, I don't think so. But actually he was right. And uh, yeah, so there's probably angles on that screen face, seeing as you brought it into the conversation. I mean, there's a scream of frustration, which is, which is where definitely where I would have started the story that you mentioned. Um, and then something, sometimes maybe there's a scream of the warrior. And I think the more I go on in life, um, I like to think that I help activate the warrior inside everybody because everybody's a warrior. Now, you're not going out trying to hurt people, but you're just going out there to um, maybe craft the best that you can in your life. And that does require... A, de- a degree, a good degree of a kind of a fighting spirit. And that's kind of really now what the picture means to me. I love it because it's um, 
it's it's a uh, yeah, I get that fight, but I also get this gentleness too, and this playfulness, and I think that's kind of that's what makes me think of you is that playfulness also that you'd color outside the lines, and what what I kind of wanted to talk to you about today is is a difficult conversation and but I know it's one that you freely discuss and it's included in the book that is just coming out called The Inner CEO. And it's your story of in your 20s that you had suffered from depression and were working for a big kind of corporate. You were working for Pepsi and you'd been in a spiral Mm -hmm. of depression for over 18 months. And this in this world that we live in, there is so much of this here and there's so many difficult stories that are told. And your story is where you are on the point of taking your own life and something pulled you back. Will you share that story with us? Sure. Um, I suppose, well, it's back in, it's a good, t- good while ago now. So it's back in 1995. It was about a week before my uh, 24th birthday. Um, I had managed to get myself into a mental space that I didn't realize, to be honest with you, it'll sound a bit silly saying this now, but I just didn't realize how bad it was. Now, I should have, obviously, it sounds, you know, but when you're in that kind of a uh, downward spiral of depression, which is where I was, it was kind of, I was about 18 months into it there without realizing it. Um, I kind of, the pain of just getting about my life had ended up outweighing any benefit to staying on the planet. So I kind of made this decision that I was going to go on this particular day uh, it was a Friday, I was in work, and I had decided that at the end of the day, I was going to do something very specific. My background, I, I got qualified as a chemical engineer, so I had reasonable knowledge of chemistry and what to do. Actually, it's not that complicated if you get into it. Um, but I wanted, in this weird way, to ring home to my parents in Kilkenny. I wanted to hear my mother's voice. And in my mind, that was the last tick. And once I heard her voice, then, okay, right, grand. Now we can just do what we have to do. Um, and I, as I would have shared with you before, and it was what I shared in the book, um, my mum didn't answer the phone, and Kenny, my dad did, and he was having an unusually late lunch. And my dad would normally, uh, people would I would call a typical Irish dad, like, you know, he wouldn't be into deep and meaningful conversations on the phone, be more about the match, or how's your job, and will I pass you on to your mother? And that had all happened, happened within 60 seconds. But on this particular day, Something was looking after me. He was looking after me. Maybe our, something higher was looking after me because he just said, I said, can I talk to mom? And he said, no, well, no, what's wrong? And he wouldn't get off the phone. And so that, that, that started, that, that was a catalyst that started a series of events because on that call, uh, he didn't get out of me what I was going to do, but he kind of understood and got out of me to admit that there was something serious going on with me that I that I'd found myself in this, just this kind of, I don't know, paralytic state, uh, upset state, depressed state. I couldn't articulate it that way. And luckily for me, my dad said, look, will you just stay in the phone box? It was no, this is pre-mobile phones. That's how long ago we're talking, Panola. <laughs> and uh, he just said, look, will you stay there for a few minutes? I want to ring somebody. And I said, who? And he said, I'll tell you when I ring you back. And he ran me back a few minutes later. I'm still there. And he said, I want you to ring this friend of mine. His name is Morris. I said, who's he? He said, a counsellor. And uh, we had a little bit of a fight about that because my ego at the time didn't really want to get any help and didn't think bizarrely that I needed any help. Um, 
again, when you're in that kind of state, you just, nothing makes any logical sense when sometimes what you're saying and what you're doing. Um, but he convinced me to ring this guy and this guy got to the nub of what I, where I was at and convinced me to get, make my excuses at work, get in the car and drive down to him in Waterford. And that was the start of basically the journey that I'm still on. Because luckily for me, um, I got a second chance um, because I, I, no, I don't say it lightly. I know sometimes even people who knew me then, even my colleagues in Pepsi, some would say, no, nah, you weren't that bad. I mean, I knew you then. And this, I think, is actually part of the, still the problem, I think, with something like depression is that we need to be educated sometimes to, to, to kind of dig deeper and see with people. Um, like everybody has challenges. Uh, a, a depression is way more common than people realize. And, you know, most of the time people have an episode of depression and it will move on. Uh, but then sometimes people get stuck in depression. And that's where I was at the time. And all I can say is, you know, as a counselor explained to me, you know, you have a mind and Shane, your mind is kind of, you kind of messed it up. And as I've said to you before, that was the very first time anybody ever said to me, you have a mind. And I, luckily for me, I heard that in two ways. The first one was, I thought, okay, I have a mind. What does that mean? Uh, <laughs> and the second thing was, if I have a mind, that means I'm not my mind. So who the hell am I? Which was a, a bigger question, a perplexing question, but actually maybe the question that was the most important. It kind of kickstarted what you ended up doing then afterwards, didn't it? Yeah, no, so, well, that, 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 that took a while because I think, I mean, I stayed working there in Pepsi for, I think probably, it was around about five years, I think, after that. Um, and I suppose what, you know, the, I, I was going to the council to go to Mars every Friday for about six months. And those six months were very difficult. He had said to me at the start, you know, originally he had said to me, look, the pain will go away which was fantastic. That's just what you want to hear. And then at the, at the first session, he kind of explained what that meant, that it, it was probably going to get more, more got better. And uh, unfortunately, that was true. It, it just, it was just, those six months were like, just very, very difficult. But I managed to see something about myself. I understood and saw things about the way I was thinking. I managed to untangle the, the, the twine that had been seriously tangled up in my mind that was blocking my clarity, my confidence, uh, my ability to enjoy life, to see hope. And after about six months, that hope started to come back. But I still was very much on a on the early on the early stages of of a learning curve about how to manage my inner world. And that that's what but the gift of that time was was that So what struck that has always struck me about Actually, not always. You told me this when we had our uh, briefing call, Shane, which was the moment where the counsellor says to you that it's, it's going to get worse before it gets better. And you readily acknowledge that. And the thing that really struck me, and I do think it's a clue to what you do with your what you're doing currently in your work, which is that you had these tangible steps, step by step, you decided things that you would put in place to make, to help yourself. Yeah. And it, it alludes to this strong presence of mind, this inner strength, which I always see in you. But these, uh, and I have a list. So you decided you'd go to the counsellor every Friday. You realised you couldn't be by yourself. So you moved in with somebody. 
You asked your mum to call you every morning so you had a reason to get up. So then you could go to work and you, and she did that for you for seven weeks. And then you went to work and you focused on one hour at a time. And I remember this story, which is at the end of each hour, you'd go to the toilet and bang your head against the wall and say another effing hour. And it kind of blew me away that you. What does it take? Like, is that what's that state of mind? To, that's amazing that you are able to break it down for yourself so that you could survive. Well, I, I think that's the point. I mean, I, it was survival. Do you know what I mean? Like it was, it was struggling for my life. That at that point, like you're saying, there was a presence of mind. I think on the outside, looking in or looking back, maybe that's the case, or maybe you can say that, but I didn't feel that at the time. It was more what was driving me, Fanola, and I think I might have said this to you before. Was I remember making a very clear decision that I was going to live, and it all came back to that because. I had promised, I had made a decision. I'd made a promise to myself, okay, no matter what, I'm just going to keep going here. But it kind of took, it took Morris, the counselor. He was the person at that first session who kind of, he had said to me, look, you know, I'll help you, but I don't want to be getting a phone call from your dad saying that, well, you know, unfortunately we lost Shane because he did something stupid. Um, so he said, you need to make a decision. And I was like, yeah, yeah, no, fine. And he said, no, 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 it's not that easy. He said, you, you know, you got, you, you were about to make a decision to go the opposite way. That's like really, really scary. He says, you need to go down. It was in water, but you need to go down to the sea there and sit there and reflect on that. So I did after the session and um, they say, big boys don't cry, but big Shaney was crying. And it was like a, I don't know, there was like a, maybe a release, but I do remember looking at the seat thinking, okay, I'm going, I'm going to live. And so there, and so that, and like, I'm not just saying it for dramatic effect. That was a real thing and it has been tested, you know? So at the core of my being that is there. So it's unbreakable like that. That's just a kind of a, people talk now about non-negotiable standards in relation to things like you know, achievement or high performance, things like that, which are important and, and do make a difference. But that for me was my non-negotiable. I'm living, therefore figure it out. And that's what was driving me. And then I, I think I'd said to you, but with my mom, like uh, from a very young age, I remember being seven or eight and the doctor, I, I'd had, I'd always had issues with my teeth. They were always crap. And the dentist said, look, you need to brush your teeth twice a day, Shane. He said this to me when I was six or seven. And I remember thinking, how am I going to do this? Because I don't like brushing my teeth. And I went, oh yeah, if I go to my mom and I wrote out this thing in crayon, I promise to brush my teeth twice a day for the rest of my life. And I said to my mom, I'm going to sign this in front of you, but I promise you, I won't break the promise. So probably in the back of my mind, maybe that came into play there with just, you know, I did, I knew I, I knew I couldn't be by myself. I knew I needed support. So I, as I say, I moved in with somebody else, a, a close family friend who was amazing with me, very caring, kind and supportive. And then I, I, my mum got over, you know, I said, but can you ring me every day to give me a reason to get out of bed? Because I didn't want to go to work. You know, I'd be crying on the phone and she had to listen to that, support that. And 
she said, come on, Shane, you just got to do it because that's what I asked her to do. And then that lasted, I guess, that lasted about two months. It's such a constructive set of one foot in front of the other things. And I share this with you, Shane, because this is more than curious. It's it's um, my cousin, my first cousin uh, took his own life maybe about 10 years ago. Uh, sorry to hear that. And it's OK. It was very hard. And um, I was very proud of my other cousins, his brothers and sisters, who were very open about it because they didn't want it to be hidden. But I remember all the feelings. It was very close to him. And um, but what I remember is the step by step, each step that he took to prepare the way for his own, for leaving us. He went to my mother's retirement to He said goodbye to her and to me and my sister. He went to his niece's uh, engagement party. He paid off uh, his apartment. It was all these singular steps, much like you're describing, but his singular steps were destructive as opposed to constructive. And, uh, and you have this amazing thing of this moment where you flipped your thinking from an absolute decision to take your own life to an absolute decision to live. And I know we're not going to have the answer, but I want to ask it or explore it. What's the difference? Oh, I mean, first of all, I never like to hear of anybody um, like your cousin, um, you know, such a tragic thing. Um, I don't know. I think maybe I was lucky. Um, The right people got in my way at the right time. Um, I feel very lucky every day, to be honest with you, because, you know, I, I know how serious it was. Um, and I'm not sure other than that, Fanola, because I, I often, I often I think about that expression there, but for the grace of God go I, you know? So, I mean, I know what it's like to feel like there's no point to life. I know what it's like to feel like you're worthless. I know what it's like to feel that the world would be better off if you just went. And um, none of that is true for anybody because I can say that now on the other side of it. And yet you're right. I mean, I did flip the script, but it, it was not without help. And that's the truth, you know. And then maybe there was a part of me that um, wanted help a little bit. I mean, even though I'd lost hope, but the, a little bit of hope came back in because when you have somebody like, you know, that guy Morris, and he's sitting in front of me, and I'm looking at him straight in the eyes and saying, "Listen, are you telling me that the pain will go away?" And he's looking at me saying, "Yeah," um, but it's going to take some time. I suppose all I needed to hear from me was, "It's going to go away." And once I heard that, I went, "That was just me getting my little tiny fingernail onto the ledge." to pull my, start pulling yeah. myself back up the hill, back up the mountain. And that was enough. And that's why even for me, you know, I've, I've met people over the years since where they've been in difficult mental situations. Um, some of my clients over the years, in terms of business owners, entrepreneurs, CEOs, are not immune to depression. I think actually there's something around that with leaders at a high level that depression is very close by. And, you know, I've spoken to people 
And my number one job, this is what I've learned with people is like, you give them a hug and you say, I don't care what your mind is saying. There's a way out. And, and you have other things to do with your life that are going to make an impact. Don't listen to your mind. And, you know, the mind is an incredible thing. And that was the gift of that crap time was that I just got such a very clear understanding and reference point. As I often joke, um, you know, if, if your friend tried to kill you, you, you would never really trust them again. And that's mm. my mind. I mean, my mind tried to take me out. So why would I ever, mm. why would I ever trust it? Now, does that mean I don't use it? Does that mean I don't kind of work to manage it? No. I mean, I, I have to rehabilitate my friend. That's what I did. And I now mm. make my mind work for me. But my mind can still throw up the most random, bizarre, crazy, mental, dark things still. I just, I just know what they're like. I just kind of go, oh, it's like, it's like having a friend inside who, who occasionally has a fit and starts say, start saying stupid things. So that's what I learned over the last, I suppose it's, nearly, it's now nearly almost 30 years since that time, since that dark time, mm. which is a long time. And I've gone through many learning curves around what, how do you manage your mind? What does that actually mean? Um, and there's lots of different types of lessons that I've got around that. And many of the lessons that I initially learned have stayed with me. And then some of them I realized, oh, they're kind of crap. They, they, they don't really work. It's more theoretical. It doesn't work in reality. Um, and that's kind of, you know, what I've learned over the years and what I've actually written in that book is about is more, do you know what? This is what I'm trying to get across in the book is actually, if you get into it, you know, understanding how to manage your mind is absolutely essential. We all need to learn it from a very young age, but it's not that hard once you start to see the variables. It's not, it's not that hard. And actually what I've realized is that, you know, it's more to do with kind of unlearning some of the bad habits, mental habits that society kind of gives us because it doesn't understand what it's doing. And it's about kind of unwinding those, unlearning those, taking them away so that your own natural type of innate, um, healthy mindset can kind of emerge. It's almost like saying, okay, we're going to get rid of the clouds and the sun is there. I don't make the sun appear. It's always there. And so the, for me, that's the way my and yours innate wisdom, innate well-being, which for most people is going to say, ah, here, like that, your man's lost it. But actually, that's what I've learned is that so much of this is overcomplicated. Think about you, what you just said, which was that we should learn it from a very young age. So my son is 14 and he's smart. OK, and I'd say to him, but Sean, you know, you have power over your own mind, don't you? No, I don't. <laughs> what do you say? <laughs> I mean, listen, you know, it's it's I've got two kids and um I think like when you're a parent to teenagers, like I've got a son who's 14 as well. And listen, I can say the most inspiring stuff as far as he's, as far as he's concerned, whenever I say anything, it's just like, it's it, his default uh, assumption is this is loser central. You know what I mean? So uh, I'm, I'm not going <laughs> to, if I'm going to listen to anybody, I'm not going to listen to him. Um, <laughs> so no, look, I mean, I think, I think um, we have, I have the same challenge. Um, Sam, who's my son, who's 14, 
you know, said to me one day, which was a very profound question. He said, you know, he said, Dad, you know the way you'd be going on about the mind? And I'd be like, in my head, I'm thinking, I don't really go on about the mind with you. Um, <laughs> and, and I said, uh, well, no, I don't really go on about the mind. He said, no, you do, you do. You go on about the mind. I said, and then he said, Dad, there is no mind. Where, where is it? And that was a brilliant question because I remember thinking, wow, I mean, at least he's considering it. Um, I mean, at that age, I, I didn't even consider that. You know what I mean? So at least he's considering it. And he's also challenging me and saying, prove it. So I didn't really do a good job for Nola, but what I said to him was, I said, listen, um, there's a lot of things that we can't see, but that doesn't mean that they're not there. And he said, like what? I said, well, look, I said, gravity, I can't see it. He goes, oh, no, no, but that's proven by science. I said, well, no, hold on, hold on. I said, I can't see it. I said, oxygen, I, I can't see it. And he goes, ah, oh, well, you can see it under a microscope. I said, fair enough, but I can't see it. He said, ah, oh, that's not the same. And then I said, light, I can't see light. And he's like, what? What are you talking about? And actually, <laughs> his point is actually... So like pretty Sean. <laughs> yeah, but what, what I could say to him was, would you accept that you have a brain? And he said, yeah, <laughs> I can accept that. I said, okay. I said, look, I said, don't need to listen to me. I said, but is these guys called neuroscientists? And he goes, yeah, well, I think I've heard of them. And I said, look, they, they say that, they'll all say that the mind is the brain in action. And he kind of accepts that a little bit, but it's still a work in progress. And I said, look, the reality is, is that when you think, your neurons fire in your brain. That's a fact. That's what they've, they're showing that. And I said, there's a phrase that scientists have, which is, or neuroscientists have, which is neurons that fire together, wire together. What that means is, the more I think something, the more of a habit it becomes, and you actually literally wire the physical structure of your brain, which changes your mind. Now, as it turns out, I, I think it's around about 50-50 of the scientific community think that there is a mind and there's no mind. But nobody can argue that there isn't a brain. So maybe that's the way to go for Nola, because, you know. And, <laughs> okay. And, and, and then after that, what I learned with, with my wife and with my kids and my two dogs is that the less I say, the better. Where I'm better off focusing is on being a role model and being an example of what I talk about. Because that, in any context, whether I'm a parent, a leader, an educator, a friend, human, um, that's the hardest one of all. But that is the one that makes the biggest difference. Any change that I can make in myself in terms of exhibiting what I'm talking about, um, that, is, that is by far the single most important thing to be able to do because most people don't really listen to what you say. They'll always mm. watch for what you do. Yeah. And I think that's one of the problems with today's world is that like information is great, but there's a problem with that because if information was the answer, if me sharing something with you even here was the answer, like we'd all be deliriously happy. We'd all have great careers, we'd all have millions because all of that information is on the internet. So there's something missing. And so what I would say to my clients is, you know, look, information doesn't change anything. What changes things actually is getting an insight. And what's an insight? An insight is seeing something inside yourself. An insight, seeing something inside yourself where you kind of go, oh, so, for example, when I was sitting with 
the cancer in the very first session, I had an insight that I'd never had before, which was I had a mind. I, I, I never saw that before. I said, oh, I have this mind. I, can, I, I know because I'm thinking. And then I also had this insight afterwards, which was, oh, I don't have to believe what I'm thinking. Now, as simple as that might sound, most people don't know that. Like, I don't have to believe mm. anything that I'm thinking. And actually, most of the time, I don't. As I said to a client of mine recently, and he said, sorry, did you say what I just think you said? What, what? I said, what, what do you think I said? And he said, you said that you don't really rate 95% of your thinking. And I said, you know, that's correct. Yeah, that's correct. 95% of my thinking is not worth anything. It's just repetition. Why? It's, why? Okay. Because it's coming from... It's coming from a part of my mind that's rooted in the past and it's rooted in my personality. And Shane's personality is not the real Shane. Like she, there's a, we all have masks and personality is really a mask that we put on. It's, it's formed from our past, our experiences, all of which are very random. And so depending on my mood, my thinking today could be, oh, if my mood is down, my thinking could be, oh, they don't like me. I don't like them. Life is is not good. I'm going to like so. Why would I even think about it? And even then, on the flip side, okay, fair enough. If my thinking is better, if my mood is up, I might kind of go, okay, well, I like that thinking because it's more optimistic. But even still, that doesn't mean it's true. So, like, one of the greatest gifts that we have as humans is that we all have a mind. I mean, Sam is still debating that with me, right? Um. What we can all, what, I think what we can all agree on is that we all think. It seems to be a universal thing that we all think. And how we use thought is an incredible gift if we understand how to use it um, creatively, constructively, for our own good and for the good of society. And I suppose at that time, yes, go for it. Here's a question. How do you, how do you know so when you're in that state, because I also have clients who that we have these conversations with also, and it, the question is, is how do you know which thoughts are true? <laughs> well, see, my, see the, word, the way I look at that for now is that most of my thoughts aren't true. That's easy then. Well, you kind of have to say a little bit more now. <laughs> No, but I mean, like, you're, you're making it up as you go along. I mean, like, you know, the, 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 I might make a best guess. I think, like, you know, for me, like, we do have to make a best guess in terms of what reality is because we have to navigate as best we can. So um, there's a best guess. Um, so for me, I generally tend to think about my mood. If my mood is, is up, you know, I, I kind of tend to talk to my clients and say, look, if your mood out of 10 is 8 out of 10, 7 or 8 out of 10 and up, I tend to trust my thinking better, but I still, I still will challenge my thinking. But I, I tend to go, okay, it's probably more likely to be true, but it may not be true. But so it, I might accept it a little bit more there, but I'll still drill in and I might have to get your perspective on something. I might ask somebody else's perspective on something. And this is where diversity of thinking comes in very valuable to you as a leader or a parent is that you say, hey, listen, I, I, this is how I'm seeing it. I know that's just my perspective. How do you see it? There's an assumption then that the when your positivity is more likely to be true, which that's not necessarily true. No, no, sorry, you're correct. What I'm what I'm saying there is 
I'm more likely to kind of think that it's true, but I just said the caveat is, but I know it's not 100% true, right? But what I, what I will say to you is that when my mood is below six out of 10, I pretty much know that all of my thinking is really rubbish. Um, but in either scenario, in either scenario, um, I know I'm still making it up. I know it's just my perspective. And that's why it's critically important to get other people's diverse perspectives in, in, pretty, in, in, in major decisions in particular, whether it's business, leadership, life. You, you got to get people or get around people who will tell you what they actually think, not just what you want to hear. And most people, I don't know, I think most of us could do better at that. Because like, when, I'm, when I'm talking with you, I mean, I'm lucky now that, I'm, that I can kind of go, okay, hang on, look, I know this is my opinion, this is my perspective, and I know it's not the absolute truth, so I need to hear how you see it. Yeah. Do you have a practice where your, your, your presence of mind says to you, I'm a six out of 10, do you have a practice where you go, now I'm actively going to raise my state? That's a really great question because um, I used to, like years ago, I used to put myself under pressure. Um, because I, 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 like I think, well, hang on, I'm the guy that helps people get better and raise their game, right? And without realizing it, my inner voice had snuck in and was kind of going, what do you mean your mood is at six out of 10? Talk about a loser central. You know, you can't even get your mood up higher than a six out of 10. Like that's, what's that about, Shane? You think you're great. Oh my God, losers. And thinking, hang on a second here. <laughs> and now, so now, um, you know, like, and so what would happen is I'd beat myself up and make it worse. And then you say, okay, I'll well, take some corrective action, go for a run or whatever else. But if that voice wasn't gone, and this is an important point of awareness is that like, I'm very clear that like, we all have an inner voice. You've one, I've got one. It's always commenting. It's always narrating. Um, and it's very important to recognize that that's part of your inner world, your inner organization, but it's not, again, the real you. It's just part of that inner world. It's like a narrator. And I can, I can tell it what to do, but then sometimes it just turns. It gets cynical, it gets judgmental, it gets down. And if my mood is off now, what I'm really good at now is, and this is the way I'd say I talk to clients, is I just accept that my mood is off. And I'm just very careful then with the meetings I go into, I'm careful with the decisions I make, I will take some corrective action. So say, for example, and this is the honest to God truth, in the last 48 hours, um, one of my kids brought a bug into our house and it has gone from my, you know, from the two kids into my wife and now me. So I got the bug for the last 24 hours. So I know that kind of my state is kind of moving up. It's kind of, I would say it's about a five or six out of 10 at the moment, right? I don't care. Um, I, I just look after myself. I just don't care. I used to care. And I think that's a mistake that people make. Um, it's like, okay, I know I, I need to do whatever. I need to get on it. No, I mean, I, already today, I actually did a very light workout because I thought I'll just test it. That, that helped with my state. Um, I took a long break for lunch and I did a little bit of extra relaxation for rest because my body needs it. So I adapted there. I just care for myself in a way that I probably would care for somebody else if their mood was low. And I think that's something that I have learned that's a value is that like, can you care for yourself the way you, you might care for somebody else that you really love? And that took me a long time to figure out and said, you know what, if it was my best friend or my wife 
or my kid that say, hey, don't worry about being low. It happens. Everyone's mood goes in cycles. We all get ups and downs. Don't fight it. I said, but here's the thing. If you don't fight it, what tends to happen is your mood starts to come back up more quickly. Yeah, great. So do what you need to do to look after yourself. Get some sleep, get some rest, get some Lemsip, get some paracetamol. Do what you need to do. Cancel a meeting. Whatever you need to do, just go easy. Now, when you, I think when you hear it like that, I, I'm guessing some people would probably be going, well, that's just common sense. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's common sense. Yeah, no, they don't do, don't do it. They don't do it. Yeah, and certainly I didn't do it for a long yeah. time because I was very much, for a period even coming out of the, that that time, I got into it was very much what I would call the rah rah rah, let's do it approach for high performance, and almost like the the Navy SEALs approach of you know yeah I don't care if you're feeling shit, just hit the floor and give me a hundred, and there's a time and a place for that, but it's not. It's, I, I just don't think that's a sustainable approach to true success in life in any context because um, you just you lose something. Um, I know a lot of people who can do things like that push through, but they lose something. It's almost like you, in a way you almost cut off that part of you that's really human. When we chatted before, we were talking about how people took time out during covid we had lockdown, everyone, I took up sea swimming, people went for long walks, <laughs> you know, we all got a, one with nature, yeah. you know, the dolphins returned, all that good stuff. And in our conversation, you said you actually think that people didn't learn from it. They just learned it intellectually and they didn't take it in. Can you tell me more about what you feel is going on there? Like if ever there was a time that we can point to to say, this is the lesson, this is the lesson. But, it, it, but you feel they've gone back worse. Yeah, well, I mean, it's something I discussed actually with colleagues of mine. Um, I think that, I think most people learned valuable lessons about themselves and maybe their minds and life and what's important um, and lots more during the pandemic. But I think it's a distinction I kind of draw on as well in the book, which is that like there's intellectual understanding and then there's actual understanding. And when you intellectually understand something, it means that you, you, you can explain it. I can talk about it very clearly. But, and I used to do this, by the way, I was the biggest culprit of this, that I'd, I'd know lots. But was I doing it? No. So therefore, mm. it wasn't, I didn't actually understand it. I didn't actually integrate it into my behavior. And so therefore, it's not real understanding. So, I think a lot of people, what I've seen is that I think the world has gotten busier since the pandemic came out. I think it is challenging for people anyway, because I think a lot of organizations are still struggling with trying to find a model that actually fits, that's fit for purpose for today's world. I think, you know, there's a legacy mindset of the industrial age, which is command control, factory mindset. I, I think a lot of organizations don't even realize the extent to which, to which it's there, because it's usually unconscious. And the models that we have for how we see business, how we see life, they reflect that into our organizations and then into how we handle life. So, yeah, I, I, if I'm being honest, and again, talking with colleagues, I think they're seeing the same thing, is that people are busier than ever, stress has gone back up. Um, yes, there are uh, cracks of improvement in terms of some of the remote working, but just because you're working remotely doesn't mean, again, that you're not still on technology way more than you probably need to be, that your mind is, isn't stressed or that you're maybe disconnected in different ways or that you're not looking after yourself. 
um, or not looking after people around you. It's all about, you know, let's just drive the results. And I think to me, the future opportunity, if I'm talking specifically about business, is around creating organizations that actually genuinely want to make great profit because profit's important. Um, we don't get any profit. We can't pay people. We can't invest. We can't grow. But then also we want to help people to profit from life. Do you know that we, we help people to get better in terms of their health, their well-being, to learn essential inner skills, to manage themselves so that they reduce stress and that they're able to even navigate life better, whether they have a family or whatever it is. I like this statement um, to help people so make profit, yes, but to help our people profit from life. I really like that. Do we have a model for that? Do you have hope for that? Do you believe that that's possible with organizations that are so stuck in their own bureaucracy? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I got massive hope for it, yeah. But, but progress seems to take longer than Shane would like. Um, listen, we, you know, humans push a person on the moon. We design incredible technology that I'm talking to you now through a screen. There's no wires. Like, that is just incredible. Like, think about that. Like, we're talking like this. You're recording software. We just take us, like, of course we can do it in business because it's just down to a desire and then we can harness creativity. And there's no doubt about it. I, I'm meeting people every day, leaders who want to try and do that, who are open to trying new ways. But yeah, you know, it, it, it's going to take time. But I'm seeing cracks, enough cracks going to give me hope. And part of my job, and I've got colleagues out there who are trying to do the same thing. But it is trying to get this balance of, you know, paying the mortgage, you yeah. know, and businesses making profit. Um, but also that's part of the, edu the education that I'm trying to increase the awareness of, Finola, is, you know, a lot of the damage in our planet collectively has come from the human ego. And part of our education is to understand how to put the ego into a different place inside us so that it's not running the show. It, it, an ego can be very important and actually is critical. It actually is very important, but it shouldn't be running the show because the ego gets greedy. And then we've got problems like, you know, well, I want to get all, I want to get all the money and you guys don't get any money. And, you know, that kind of approach in general, I think has been proven over time to cause plenty of damage. And we're seeing it with our, with our world that's come about by greed. So, but there are enough leaders happening. And so if you're asking me now, like, I, I genuinely think like this, like, I'm very excited about what's going to happen over the next 20, 30 years. Do I think there's going to be a lot of pain? Yeah, because there is a lot of pain and there's like, there's no growth without pain. And, um, the ego doesn't let go of things easily. And I've learned that myself firsthand. And part of my job is to educate my clients who are leaders in all sorts of different industries is to educate them on like, what does that even mean? Like, how do you, how do you know when your ego is stepping in? Um, how am I aware of that? And, and again, I bring it right back to a first principle, which is, you know, your ego lives in your mind and you are not your mind. You're, you're, the, you're the awareness or the observer or the witness of your thinking. That's the real Finola. That's the real shame. But that's free of the limitations of my mind. It's free of the, limit, of the clutches of my ego. And it's just to get used to well, how, how do you get a feel for that? How does that work in a practical day-to-day -day scenario? 
But the starting point is to realize that you're not your mind, you're not the voice in your mind, and it's limited. That, that part of yourself is limited. There's a, there's a deeper part to you and me, to everybody listening here, that is more intuitive, that comes from a deeper place, that is probably grounded in common sense. But in it, it also wants, it has, an, it has a natural win-win approach. It wants everybody to win. It wants you to win, me to win, everybody here listening to win. Not, not in a Pollyanna sense, because you know like that's not how life is. Like I'm very practical at the end of it all. But there is something inside us deep down that I think most people are becoming more aware of. And that, that might have been one of the benefits of the pandemic is that there was a kind of a, I've, see, I've seen it firsthand in my job, that there's more of an openness to even having a conversation about what I'm talking about. Wonderful. Tell me why you wrote your book, The Inner CEO. Um, my mind will give you one answer, which it did quite quickly when, when I was thinking about this. And then I was thinking, that's not the real answer. Because, um, mm. you know, so the real answer was, um, it came in as a feeling and an idea. And it was kind of like, I just had to write it because, um, I, well, see, I'm not too sure what the because is. I just, the starting point was, this is the idea. You got to write about this. And we went from there. And looking back on it now, I can give you all sorts of intellectual reasons why I think I wrote the book, but I'm not too sure if that's the truth. But it was, it's been a great project. It's, it's over like four and a half years. It's been very challenging, very challenging way more challenging than I thought it would be. Um, but I'm, I put my heart and soul into it and a little bit of my mind. Um, <laughs> and mm. I'm really happy with not just the way it's turned out. Well, it's the book that I, that I feel wanted to come in. Um, but also, I'm just really excited and humbled by some of the feedback from early readers on the book because I'm hearing the things back that I really hoped that I would hear. Um, as in like... What did you hope? What did you hope that it would do? What was the job of your book? To open people's minds even more and for them to kind of go, oh, oh, actually, oh, I didn't realize this is the kind of book, book that anybody could read. Because the title is The Inner CEO. So the danger is that people think, oh, it's for leaders, for CEOs, aspiring CEOs, which it partly is. But really, it's been the concept is, is to become the CEO of your life become, by becoming the leader of your inner world and understanding that we have an inner world. And that was the thing that I most wanted people to say, oh, hang on a second here. This is actually, I could give this to my, to my son or my, or my wife. Yeah, you could, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and they would get it. And then the second bit was, oh, this is actually very relatable. And um, that's what I really wanted to get because something like this to me, um, I don't know, listen, I've, I've read probably more books than most in this kind of genre because of my job um and some books i like more than others but I, if i'm being honest i think a lot of the books are overcomplicated, and i'm not sure that they always work so part of my job over the last 30 years has been to test stuff and then see well what works what doesn't and then maybe as over time as you start to get a sense of your field in any context whether you're a carpenter or a doctor or an engineer you know you'd hope that you're kind of getting a mastery of your craft. And I guess that's what I've been looking at or trying to do over the years. And now I kind of realize, oh, do you know what? 
I'm seeing underlying principles here, fundamentals that are universal, that I think actually will simplify this for a lot of people. And I think it'll save everybody a lot of time that what I'm trying to do is accelerate people's learning curve in this area so that they can kind of go, oh, that makes a lot of sense. And they would have the confidence to kind of know, okay, well, this has been tested by this guy over a lot of time. And there's a lot of value here to kind of at least give it a go. Um, and that's kind of what I'm, what I'm hearing back. So from that context, it's kind of a, I would kind of almost call it like a, it's very much a heart and a soul project. It's something that's kind of from a deeper part of me that's very meaningful for me. And it's, it's a very much purposeful project. Thank you, Shane. Thank you, Fanola. I hope you enjoyed that episode. And if you'd like to find out more about Shane, check him out on LinkedIn or on shanecraddock.com. That's S-H-A-N-E-C-R-A-D-O-C-K.com. And if you'd like to find out more about his latest book, The Inner CEO, then visit theinnerceo.com. If you'd like to support the show, please leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts and reach out and let me know your takeaways from this episode. And if you'd like me to do more about this. If you or someone you know is experiencing suicidal thoughts, please reach out for help from someone you know or here at pieta.ie forward slash how dash we dash can dash help slash helpline. The link will be in the show notes. And thank you for listening.